0: God's Word, and to the sermon series that we have been engaged in now for the last couple of weeks, Anchored, Stabilizing Truths for a Shaky World. And we come to part three of that study this, well, afternoon, and if you have your Bibles then and I hope you do, I invite you to turn with me in them to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, that is the wrong text up on there. 1 Peter chapter 1, and beginning in verse 13. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 13, and we're going to read from verse 13 to 21. Our text will be chapter 113 right through to the first three verses of chapter 2, but we're just going to read verses 13 to 21 to get us situated. So, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through to 21... Um, I will invite you to read responsively with me so I will read the odd numbered verses I'll invite you to read the even numbered verses with me so I'll read 13 we'll read 14 together and we'll go on that way till we hit the end of our text So 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 13 to 21 And if you're able to do so out of reverence and respect for God's word as we read it can I invite you to stand with me as we read our text this afternoon 1 Peter chapter 1 Beginning in verse 13. Brothers and sisters, these are God's words. Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance, but as the one who called you is holy. You also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. If you appeal to the Father who judges impartially according to each one's work, you are to conduct yourselves in reverence during your time living as strangers. For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for you. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Pray that God will bless that reading of His Word and grant us understanding as we study it. Let me pray, ask for the Spirit's help, and then we will get to work in the message for this afternoon. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Your Word. We thank you for the opportunity that we have once again to dig deep into its truth and to allow its truth to shape and mold us as Your people. We pray that as we open up the Scriptures now and we dig into what it is Your Word has to say to us this afternoon. We pray that you would open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things out of your law. We pray that you would encourage and convict and challenge and above all that you would lift up Jesus Christ, who is our Savior, who is our sanctifier, who pardons us and gives us power for righteousness. And Father, as I pray for us here today, I take a moment to pray also for our brothers and sisters over at Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thank you for Pastor Dustin and Pastor Brian and their ministry there. Pray for Pastor Dustin as he settles into life as the pastor there, that as he labors for you, that the flock there would be encouraged, that they would be equipped, that above all, they would grow to know, love, and serve Jesus even more. That's our prayer for them, Father. And that's our prayer for us even now as we open up your word. Asking all these things in Jesus' name and for his glorious sake. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. This afternoon we continue our study, like I said, in First Peter, and I have given our message this afternoon. Wrong title up on there again grounded in holiness, grounded in holiness, looking at 1 Peter chapter 1 from verses 13, excuse me, right through to chapter 2 and verse 3, grounded in holiness. I wonder what comes to your mind when you hear that word holiness. Uh, It's not outside of church is not really a word you would use in everyday life. I understand that. But I, I, for a moment, I wonder what comes to your mind when you hear that word. Uh, do you hear a rule book, a list of things that you can and can't do? Uh, in the tradition that I grew up in, um, oftentimes we talked about holiness, and that's what it boiled down to. You know, do you wore certain clothes and didn't wear certain clothes. You did certain things and didn't do certain things. You said certain things and didn't say certain things. Uh, you know, sometimes it got, it didn't go up, it didn't get, it was sometimes just flat out ridiculous when you sat and thought through it, because what basically came to happen was that we would talk about holiness almost as though holiness is something that you did based on keeping certain rules and by not doing other rules. And I wonder just how much that prevailing understanding of what holiness is, almost as though holiness is basically everything that's not fun. I wonder how much that understanding of holiness has affected a whole generation of Christians who saw that, who not only saw it, but saw through it and thus decided, you know what? Holiness is not that important. But the problem was, if you basically reject all sorts of moral standards, and if you reject any sort of call to holy living, then the opposite starts to happen. And I don't think it's by accident that we have seen more so in our generation than any other, a generation of Christians of whom all kinds of things are said, which in previous generations would never have been said. I don't to say that Christians have always been perfect in every age. Of course not. But there has been this almost prevailing loss of the fact that we as Christians are called to holy living. Now, in order to rectify this, I do think that at times some have gone to the opposite extreme. They've said, well, the problem is people have abandoned the rules. So dust off the rule book and let's reinforce the rules. And in fact, let's reinforce them even harder. Well, if that's the answer, well, let's look at the fruit. Has that worked? And I think we can all agree the answer is a resounding no. So for others, they've said, okay, we've got people who, they say they're Christians, but there's no holy living. I know what we'll do. We'll just say that the call to holiness, well, somebody else did that, has done that. Excuse me. So in other words, we'll say, and you, you've probably heard people say this, You know, it's not about what you do for God, it's about what God has done for you. And so then we have no category for the kinds of things that Peter is going to talk about in our text this afternoon. I think at the core of all of those misunderstandings of how to deal with this problem is misunderstanding the fact that it's not just we need Jesus when we need pardon for our sins true as it is, is the reason we have an assurance of pardon every week, because we rightly believe that we need Jesus for the pardon of our sins. But not only do you need Jesus for the pardon of your sins, brothers and sisters, but the Bible teaches us that Jesus is given as power for holy living. See, the key is not a rule book. The key is knowing a person. And what we're going to see as we come to 1 Peter chapter 1, really from verse 13 through chapter 2, verse 3, is that actually, True holiness comes from an awareness of who we are in Christ and an awareness of what God has done in Christ. May I put it to you that if you just present Jesus to people, the way the Bible presents Jesus, what one of my favorite authors, Dr. Sinclair Ferguson, has called the whole Christ. If you present the whole Christ to Christians, what we will see is Christians will slowly but surely over the course of their lives respond in holy living. As I said, we, we're coming back to First Peter, and really we come to the first section of instructions as we come to the letter. Actually, there'll be a few of these, what some call the ethical sections of First Peter. There'll be a bunch of them as we go, but we come to the first of them today, and I think it's worth noting that, What you're going to see here in 1 Peter chapter 1, 13 through to 2, 3 is not so much a discussion of here are the rules, now keep them, as much as here's what you are. Here's what's been done for you. Now live up to that. You see, brothers and sisters, I've come to the conclusion that you can't talk about the fruit of faith. You can't talk about holy living, which, by the way, is important, and God desires holiness from His people. But we can't talk about holiness and the fruit of faith without talking, first and foremost, about the root of faith, you can't talk about the saved life as it were without talking about salvation. And that's why, if you follow the logic of 1 Peter so far, Peter spent verses 3 through 12 that we looked at last week talking to us about our salvation. Understand your salvation and you'll understand how sanctification works. You see, I'm gonna put it to you that holiness, which is really the theme of the section we're going to look at today, that holiness is the natural reflex of the life that has been transformed by the grace of God. And that's critical to understand because it's not that we are, as it were, saved by grace and then we grow by our works. No, Christian, if you're here today, you have been saved by grace and you are sanctified by grace, leading to the fruit of holiness and good works. As we march through this text often, we're going to encounter Peter's logic for holiness, as it were. And as you'll see, his logic is simple. So you'll read it you'll be like, well, yeah, that makes sense. But can I put it to you that as simple as his logic is, his logic is also completely counterintuitive. He, he in a few words, is going to completely upend how we naturally approach this subject. If we had to summarize this section, if we were, as we were writing a blurb on the back of a book, I, I would put the blurb as this, that believers walk in holiness in an unholy world as they make their way to glory through life's trials and sufferings. For Peter, holiness was not an option. It was not, well, some Christians progress to holiness and some Christians don't. No, Peter was no antinomian. You you know what that term means? It's not one we use in everyday speech, I know. Uh, An antinomian, basically anti-against-nomian, the law, one who holds to the law. It's the idea that as a Christian, there is no ethical and moral obligation on my life. In short, I can do what I want. Peter was no antinomian, though. We will see that very clearly as we walk through 1 Peter. But Peter recognizes that the walk of the Christian happens in the same way as they are walking from this world's trials and temptations into glory. That actually, as the people of God go through trials and tribulations, they do so in a walk of holiness For the rest of our time, I want to look at three grace-based categories of motivations. Peter says a lot here, so to kind of get our arms around it, I've done my best this week in listening to the text and allowing it to shape the sermon. Uh, I've done my best to kind of categorize these into three categories, three grace-based categories of motivations for pursuing holiness as God's grounded people. If you want to pursue holiness the right way, If we truly think and we truly believe that God is concerned with how we live as His people, I'm going to say, as it were, pull your ear up close to this text and listen to everything it has to say to us. And I put it to you that it has a lot to say to us. So, three grace-based categories of motivations for pursuing holiness as God's grounded people. First of all, Peter calls us to live from our identity. To live from our identity, verses 13 through to 17. To live from our identity. Peter bridges from the last section into this new discussion, and he does so by giving us a set of motivations that orbit around the fact that we have a distinct identity as God's people. Did you catch that little word there in verse 13, right at the beginning? He says, therefore, with your minds ready for action, and so on and so forth, in light of everything He told us in verses 3 through 12, everything we studied last week, all of that glorious gospel truth about the vast treasure that we possess in Christ, if, actually let me not say if, since all that is true, here's what your life should look like. If everything that God has done is true, and He has done that, well... Here is the logical response. Here is the reasonable response of God's people. As one Bible teacher put it, quote, Believers, having received the gift of salvation, cannot take this treasure for granted. They are children of God, and thus are expected to do the will of their heavenly Father. Well, if that's the case, if that's true, if that's how the people of God are to conduct themselves, what does it look like to live from our identity? Can I put it to you first of all, that God's people are a holy people, a hopeful people, excuse me, that God's people are a hopeful people? Verses 13 and onwards. So catch it with me. You see what he says in verse 13. He says, therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Before Peter gets to his actual imperative, we'll get there in just a moment, he gives us two attitudes. He gives us two mindsets that we need to be in as a hopeful people. So he says, verse 13, Therefore, with your minds ready for action, that one phrase that's translated there, with your minds ready for action, it's actually translating one word. All that in the original language is one word. And at first, when you hear the one word, it doesn't seem to make sense to us as 21st century moderns. Literally, you can translate this as having the loins of your mind girded up. And in fact, some of your translations will have language that's kind of similar to that. Now, that means little to us in 2022 who wear trousers, well, sorry, talking to Americans, who wear pants (laughs) and own belts, or if you're like me, when I'm usually not running around, I like to wear suspenders. (laughs) But in the ancient world, people dressed obviously a little differently to the way we dress today. In the ancient world, your average Jew wore a long sleeveless shirt. It was kind of almost like a, how do you describe it? It's not quite the Roman toga, but close enough. It was just a one-piece long shirt that they wore, and usually stretched down to about their knees or their ankles. Now, if you had a little extra money, you might have a coat that goes over that. But typically, everyone wore these really long shirts, and you kind of had a belt in the middle. That's great for if you're just kind of going about your day casually, catching up with people, all sorts. But if you needed to get on with work, or if you were a soldier and you were going to war, hmm, long, flowing shirt probably isn't the most convenient thing to wear you more than likely want to wear something that's a little more suited to action. And so what people would do is they would grab the end of this long shirt, pull it up, and basically tuck it into their belt. Uh, And that's the word that Peter uses here. It's a word that kind of carries the idea of you're moving from just casual activity to serious work. You're moving from recreation to business, as it were. Beloved, catch this with me, catch this. Peter is calling his readers, which means he's calling me and he's calling you, basically to get ready to move. Get ready to work. That what we're about to talk about here is not, as some traditions have taught, the kind of idea of let go and let God. You 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 familiar with that? You know, the idea that, well, sanctification is this event that just happens to you. If you just sit back and wait, well, you might need to pray and all that stuff, fine. But essentially, you just stop trying. Hence the let go part. And then God works. Let God. Let go, let God. That's not what we're talking about here. No, Peter would have no category for that. He says, no, in light of everything you've heard, get yourself ready to work. But he also says this, before you jump into it, verse 13, therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded. Now, my translation says be sober-minded. And what does that sound like? Sounds like a command. Here's something you should do. Here's the problem. Peter didn't actually give a command here. Those of you who've been around Redeemer for any length of time, you'll know that my favorite part of grammar, I'm a grammar nerd by you know my own admission, my favorite part of grammar is the participle. Tiffany's laughing because she's probably heard me say it so many times. A participle explains how you do an action. It's not really a verb per se, it's more of an explanation of how you do the verb. This word, so be sober-minded, participle. He's not telling you to be sober-minded. That's not the command. We'll get to the command in a moment. He's saying the way in which you do this command is by you're having your mind ready for action. Oh, that's a participle as well, by the way. So you come with the right mindset and you're sober-minded. I, I think the Legacy Standard Bible, the LSB, accurately translates this. It says, therefore, having girded your mind for action, being sober in spirit... Again, catching that idea of this is explaining how you do this. He says you need to not just have the the loins of your mind girded up, be ready for work, but you need to be sober in spirit. Well, let's pause for a moment. Why does Peter feel the need to talk about sobriety all of a sudden? Doesn't seem to fit with what he's talking about. He could have just said having the loins of your mind girded up for action, Gets on with the point. Why does he feel the need to talk about sobriety? Can I put it to you that I think Peter in the back of his mind, as he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that Peter in the back of his mind has what Jesus said in Mark chapter 4. If you're taking notes, Mark chapter 4 verses 16 to 19, the parable of the soils, if you remember that one. Listen to what Jesus said. You don't have to turn it, I'll read it to you. He says in a similar way, these are the ones referring to the ones who receive the seed on the rocky places, who when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then when afflictions and persecutions arise because of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. I put it to you that Peter is noting that for these Christians who are going through persecution, who are going through suffering, who have the danger set before them of being distracted from what God has called them to, that for these Christians, the cares of this life, Can have an intoxicating effect on your mind if you let it. If you're not careful, you might just lose your composure in the midst of a shaky world. And so that's why Peter says, Gird up the loins of your mind and be sober minded, keep it together. Instead of where I come from, we have a phrase, we say, instead of getting caught lacking, like unprepared, being caught flat-footed, instead of that, instead of being swept up and carried away, instead of all that, come back to verse 13. What does he tell us to do? Here we get to the imperative, finally. Be sober-minded. Set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here's why Christians ought to be a hopeful people. We ought to be a hopeful people because as people who have been saved by the grace of God, we have the ultimate object of hope. When I say the ultimate object of hope, what I simply mean is this. We have the hope of an eternity in the presence of God. And that hope ought to keep you centered and keep you steady in the midst of a completely vacillating world. Peter's talked about this already. Remember back in verse 7 of chapter 1, remember he said that the proven character of your faith may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That when Jesus Christ comes back in power, when his full power is revealed, on that day, we won't have any reason to be frightened we'll have every reason to rejoice. And do you hear the gospel overtones in these words? Do you catch that Peter says that there is a grace that is coming to you? He's not calling you to try and do anything. He's not calling on you to try and earn this. No, he says it's a grace that's going to be revealed to you. That just as God saved you from the penalty of your sin in justification. That was a grace. And He's saving you now from the power of sin in your sanctification. That's a grace. If the first two were grace, salvation in the past and salvation in the present, our future salvation has to be a grace as well. And so Peter simply says that, listen, this grace that's coming to you, set your mind on that completely. Ladies, I understand you're studying through Colossians in the monthly women's Bible study. Colossians chapter 3 says this, verses 1 through 4. So if you have been raised with Christ, I think this was your text last month, if I remember correctly. See the things above, where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. There is something about meditating on our future life that grounds us in the present. You hear this phrase, I don't use it because I think it's nonsense. You hear people say, oh, that person is so heavenly-minded, they're no earthly good. I told you it's nonsense. I don't use it. Because actually for the Christian who is heavenly-minded, he is completely and utterly useful in this life. John Calvin, the Swiss reformer, put it like this. I wanted to kind of make sure everyone had this, so I oh, I thought I had it. Oh, here we are. He says this, whatever kind of tribulation presses, on, presses upon us, we must ever look to this end to accustom ourselves to contempt for the former life and to be aroused thereby to meditate upon the future life for since God knows best how we are inclined by nature to a brutish love of this world, he uses the fittest, in other words, the most suitable means to draw us back and to shake off our sluggishness, lest we cleave too tenaciously to that love, end quote. By the way, this is from Calvin's little section, His is called the golden booklet of the Christian life. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend you do. Ligonier Ministries has a a slim version of that that you can buy. It's like nine bucks. I'd highly recommend it. What is it that, and Calvin talks at length about this. He has a whole chapter in his institutes about this reality, this truth. Listen, if we're not careful, we can focus on this life so much that the cares of this life pressing on us. And he says, listen, what God does is, in His grace, He gives us a future hope to look for, and we're able to push past the concerns of this life and to focus our hope squarely where it ought to be. And did you catch that Peter says we're to set our hope completely on this? This isn't a, I'm going to care about that, but I'm also care about 10 other things as well. Remember what Jesus said, Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, where he says, seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. What's our tendency as human beings? We think about all the other things and think, okay, once I've taken care of all the other things, I'll think about this. And God says, no, let's flip that order. Think about the hope you have, and that will put the problems of this world in right perspective. And so for the Christian, the Christian, God's people, we are a hopeful people. But secondly, can I point you to the fact that we are a holy people? We are a holy people, verses 14 through 16. So verse 14, Peter says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. That language of, uh, obedient children. Literally, it's children of obedience. Peter's a Jew, and he writes like a Jew. This is a Jewish idiom for saying that we are those who are characterized by obedience. Well, if we're characterized by obedience, what do obedient children look like? Well, he tells us, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. Conformed, squeezed into the mold was J.B. Phillips' translation of this word, that we aren't molded by the desires that used to characterize us before we knew Jesus, that there were certain things that we chased, that there were certain things that we thought were important. And he says, no, actually, you don't allow yourselves to be molded by that. Did you catch that he refers to it as ignorance, He says, don't be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. Well, ignorance of what? Ignorance of God. We lived lives, even the most religious person. Still, if you thought about this, even religious people, the most religious person you know, is still functioning in ignorance if their religion has nothing to do with the Word of God. Peter says, don't be conformed to how you used to live when you didn't know God. Instead, verse 15 But as the one who called you is holy, you are also to be holy in all your conduct. Now, I want to be honest and say there was a wrong way to read this verse. Here's the wrong way to read this. God is holy. You want to be like God, don't you? Well, if God is holy and you want to be like God, well, shape up and be holy. How many of you have heard this verse used in that kind of way before? I know I have. But I don't think that's Peter's point here. Peter is not basically saying, listen, try harder and do better. Pay close attention to what Peter says. Look at verse 15 again. He says, but as the one who called you is holy, you are also to be holy in all your conduct. Peter grounds the call to holiness in God's calling. Now, when Peter uses this language of calling, he's not talking about the way we think about calling, you know, what I want to be when I grow up, or this is my big dream in life. No, the calling he's talking about here is the kind of calling or the kind of call that takes place when a spiritually dead man hears the gospel, and the Spirit of God uses the hearing of the gospel to bring that spiritually dead man to new life in Christ. That's the kind of calling he's talking about here. That effective, powerful, irresistible call that comes through the gospel that takes takes sinners out of spiritual death and into spiritual life. The reality is that the reason why we can be holy, and this should be good news, the reason why we can be holy is not because you can try harder and do better. The reason why you can be holy is because when God raised you out of your spiritual grave and gave you spiritual life, he also gave you the power to pursue holiness. And so he can say, as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. Instead of living how we used to live, as we encounter the sovereign grace of God, Peter seems to suggest that the more we encounter the grace of God, our conduct will come more and more into alignment with God's holiness. You see, grounded people, remember that's what we're looking at in this series, how we can be anchored in the midst of a shaky world? Well, grounded people live differently, not because we're scared of going to hell, not because we're following some rule book, written or unwritten, definitely not because you browbeat them into doing stuff they don't want to do. Can I pause for a moment and say, could it be that some of us spend our time browbeating people into doing things they don't want to do because they don't have spiritual life to begin with? I remember when that finally hit me. I was 28 years old. I've been preaching for a while. And I wonder, why is it like, you all kind of gather I'm intense. I know I am. Like, trust me, I'm not unaware of how intense I am. Uh, Like, I used to be the kind of like, almost pound the pulpit, like spit flying everywhere. I mean, I still sweat when I preach. I can't help that. But in general, like, I used to be the kind of like, I mean, I believe you guys have this phrase here um bible thumper yeah that that's me by nature that's just how I am <laughs> and one day I was just it was reading through the book of Romans it hit me said, like, wait a minute could it be because I knew that I would preach and I would say things and certain people would gravitate towards it and be like yeah you know what what you're saying I, I recognize that appreciate that and others were just like great wall of China like I'm not listening to any of this and it finally hit me, I hate to say it, at the age of 28. <laughs> Maybe you're talking to people, not always, and we should be very careful in judging people's salvation. But it might just be the case. You're talking to people who have no spiritual life to begin with. It would be akin to me talking to, if Gareth were to have a pet rock and I would I were to pick it up and start talking to it and say, talk to me, talk to me. <laughs> And the rock doesn't talk to me. It can't. (laughs) No, God-grounded people live differently, not because of any of those reasons. They live differently because of God's grace. But only did they live differently because it's God's grace. Did you catch the end of verse 16 there? he says, For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. That's a reference to the book of Leviticus, actually. A number of places in Leviticus, God says that. And I think Peter is quoting chapter 19, verse 2. I put it there in the study guide. I think he's quoting that one because in that context, holiness is mentioned in the context of being children and honoring parents. I think Peter is very subtly saying: not only do we obey, not only do we seek to be holy because of what God has done, but because we're children. We're part of the family and we honor our heavenly father by living lives that are in line with who he is. I'm laboring this point about identity because I think it's important for us to grasp who we are before we start thinking about doing anything else. So we are a hopeful people, we're a holy people, but thirdly Peter says we're a reverent people we are a reverent people, verse 17. The final marker of identity that Peter leans on is that we are a people who act with reverence before God. Verse 17, 17, he says, if you appeal to the father who judges impartially according to each one's work, you are to conduct yourselves in reverence during your time living as strangers. That's why I think he's talking about being children in verse 16, because this theme of fatherhood runs all the way through this section. If God is our Father, and He is, if you're in Christ, and if we are His children, which we are, if we're in Christ. If all of that is true, and when things get tough, when we are weighed down by the problems of life as God's people in a fallen world, if all that is true, well, our natural response as Christians is, we cry out to God because we know that God hears us because we're His children. And Peter's point is simple. If we indeed call out to God, who is a righteous judge, who, as Peter says, judges impartially according to each one's work, the natural response for us as reverent people ought to be conducting ourselves in reverence during our time living as strangers. Reverence is a lost virtue in our culture, even in the church. I have my theories as to why. I think partly because of the last, what are we, 40 to 50 years of church history, we have sought to get rid of formality in worship. Think about it. How many churches, uh, I dabble in web design on the side. I look at a lot of church websites. How many churches go out of their way to tell you, well, we're casual in our worship? Have you ever considered just, this is the stuff that keeps me up at night, so join me in what keeps me up at one in the morning when I can't sleep. Have you ever considered that casual worship is an oxymoron? That the idea of worship that is, you know, we don't take it seriously. We're worshiping, but we don't take it that seriously. It's an oxymoron when you think about it. You can't say you're reverent and in the same breath say you're casual. Pick one or the other. Reverence is one of those terms that we've, as kind of, honestly, as a church culture, I feel that we've just tried our best to just get rid of that. In the guise, rightfully so, I think there there were times in church history where we made God seem so unapproachable, no one could come before him. Well, human nature is such that we like our pendulum swings, so we've gone right the other way to get rid of the idea of the sacred, to get rid of the idea of, wait a minute, when I come before God, I'm doing something very different to everything else I do. Reverence might be a lost virtue in our culture, but reverence is supposed to be a mark of how we live as God's people. Maybe I should flip it and use the terms of the Old Testament, since that's God's Word. If you don't like the term reverence, maybe you like the term fear of the Lord. That's the Old Testament term. That profound sense of awe that we encounter. There's a word that we've misused in our culture. We say everything is awesome. No, the idea of Something being awesome is that it is full of awe in older forms of English. You know what word they used to use instead of awesome? Awful. We say something is awful, we say it's terrible. Of funny, terrible used to mean full of majesty. Something that was weighty. Something that took your breath away, as it were. And interesting, when you read the Old Testament, the fear of the Lord isn't reserved for when we come to worship. It's all of life. All of life is meant to be lived in this profound sense of awe. Yes, when we gather to worship, we want our worship to reflect that. That's why, honestly, our worship is kind of plain. It's not boring. It's plain. It's simple. It's unadorned. Because we want to remove any distraction from the fact that we have come to worship a holy God. But really, Sunday is just the tip of the tip of the iceberg. Sunday ought to be the outflow of lives that are steeped in reverence. That are steeped in awe. And that's why Peter says that a marker of redeemed people is that they view God for who he is and they conduct themselves in light of it. Like I said, this first point is a little long because this really is the foundation of everything else he's gonna talk about. The rest of this will move somewhat quickly. So, first of all, we need to live from our identity, but secondly, you need to look back at what God did for you, verses 18 to 21. Not only do you live from your identity, you have to regularly look back at what God did for you. In verses 18 to 21, Peter, as it were, takes the precious diamond that is our call to holiness, and he turns it a little bit. And We see another facet of this as he gives us some more motivations for holiness, and this time he grounds the call to holiness, not just in our identity, but in what God has done in saving us. Can I point out three things he says here real quickly? First of all, he says that salvation was purchased by God through Christ, verses 18 and 19. So look at verse 18 with me. He says, for you know, and again, that's a participle, knowing. So he's still talking about this idea of conducting ourselves in reverence. How do we do that? We do that knowing or for you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life inherited from your ancestors. In a lot of ways, this is one of the greatest motivations, if not the greatest of all of them. When God redeemed us, when God paid the purchase price for our salvation, can I put it to you that God didn't cheap out? That God wasn't trying to save the budget as it were and so what's the most cost effective way we can do this while still getting the job done no god didn't cheap out he didn't go for the most mundane or regular can i put it to you that god put up the best thing that he had that he said you know what here is my innocent son he has lived with me from before time was in perfect communion in perfect harmony I'm going to put him up. And so he comes, he lives the life that we couldn't live, and then he dies the death that we rightly deserved, and that precious, valuable death of that innocent son is what redeems us, It's what buys us up and buys us out of sin. But did you catch what Peter said we we're redeemed from? As I read this text this week, it, it took me a moment, I was like, I had to catch myself, I was like, wait a minute, That's an interesting way to put this. Verse 18. For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life inherited from your ancestors. He doesn't say that you were redeemed from sin, true as that is. He doesn't say that you were redeemed from the hand of the devil, true as that is. No, Peter seems to focus in on the fact that you were redeemed from a particular way of life. Don't miss this. God doesn't... This is huge. God doesn't just save us from bad things. Have you ever thought about that? When we talk about salvation, we typically talk about salvation from sin, which is true. I'm not trying to downplay that. But we often think it's the bad things that God saves us from. No, the really obvious bad things. Well, he does. Bible's was clear about that. But can I put it to you that God doesn't just save us from bad things like sex and drugs and crime? but he also saves his people from, catch this, from pointless dreams and waste of time pursuits that have no eternal value. Edmund Clowney, I quoted him in week one, if you remember, uh, Edmund Clowney in his commentary on First Peter said this, quote, every society reveres its fathers, whether they be Confucius or Marx, Jefferson, Darwin, or Freud. Peter describes the liberation of Christians from the traditions of the fathers, not simply from a few mistaken ideas that have been hallowed by time, but from the deepest meaning or lack of meaning of cultural tradition. Not a few customs, but a whole lifestyle has been swept away by God's redemption. End quote. Could it be, by some stretch of the imagination? This is going to sound mad controversial, especially since I'm not from America. So please, I apologize in advance if you're offended by this. But could it be that Jesus saves us from the American dream? Could it be that Jesus doesn't just save us from being sinful people, but saves us from the idea of all I need to do in life is pursue my comfort and pursue my needs? Could it be that the blood of Christ, precious and valuable and pure as it is, it saves us not only from sin, but it saves us from ourselves and our ideas of what the world is meant to be? Could it be by some stretch that in redemption, we not only receive redemption from sin, that we receive redemption from the rat race? that we receive redemption from chasing that which is pointless and is taking us ultimately, in eternal terms, absolutely nowhere. But don't get from my words that Peter doesn't care about salvation from sin when he says this. Because did you catch what else he refers to Jesus as? In verse 19, he says, you weren't saved with or redeemed with perishable things like gold and silver, verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. That language of unblemished and spotless, that's Exodus 12 Passover language. That's redemption, salvation language. (laughs) Yes, Jesus saves us from a pointless way of life, but He doesn't just save us from a pointless way of life. He saves us from the very sin that leads to a very pointless way of life that He is God's once for all, substitutionary sacrifice for sinners, and we must never lose sight of that, even as we pursue holy living. Salvation was purchased by God through Christ, but secondly, salvation was planned by God around Christ. Salvation was planned by God around Christ, verse 20. So, Peter says he, referring to Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for you. Peter uses this word back in verse 2 to talk about believers. Remember, we said that it carries the idea of being pre known, of being pre loved, of being predetermined. Well, not only were believers pre loved, pre known, predetermined, but Jesus himself was pre loved, pre known, predetermined as the one who would be the focal point of God's work of salvation. God planned salvation in Christ long before you and I are on the scene. And when Galatians 4, 4, one of my favorite verses says, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son. So salvation was purchased by God through Christ. It was planned by God around Christ. But thirdly, salvation is preserved by God in Christ. Salvation is preserved by God in Christ, verse 21. Through him, verse 21, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. If you're here and you're a believer, you're a believer because God made sure that you would believe. Philippians chapter 1 verse 29 says that it's granted to you not only to believe in Christ but to suffer for him. Paul's point being there, listen, Your faith was granted to you, and guess what? The opportunity to suffer is granted to you too. Ephesians 2, 8, For you are saved by grace through faith, and this this is not from yourselves. Without getting too technical, the this there is referring both to grace and faith. You believe because God made sure that you believe. But Peter takes it a step further. You're a believer not just because God made sure you believe. You're a believer because God exercised the same power when... He raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand. That same power is at work in you. That's why he can say, Your faith and your hope are in God. We pursue holiness not because of what we are able to do, but because God has done so much for us in our salvation. And so we live from our identity. We look back at what God has done for us in Christ. Thirdly and finally, here's a third set of motivations. We live in line with divine truth. We live in line with divine truth. 122 through to 2 3. We live in line with divine truth. Peter's final set of motivations all orbit around the word of God and our heart responds to it. It's perfect that his final two motivations, he's got two more and we'll be done. His final two motivations center around the word of God the incarnate word in the person of Jesus Christ and the written word in the scriptures. And both of them are crucial in our walk. If you're going to live in line with divine truth, can I put it to you that first of all, you need to remember the power of the word in your own life. Remember the power of the word in your own life, verses 22 to 25. So verse 22 and 23, Peter says, since you have purified yourselves by your obedience to the truth, so that you show sincere brotherly love for each other, from a pure heart, Love one another constantly, because you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. Peter moves to the goal of God's work of holiness in the lives of his people. And verse 22, he makes it clear that the purpose of God's work of holiness, one of them anyway, is that there would be genuine love among God's people. But did you catch the order in which we get there he says, since you purified yourselves, literally you purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. I would argue that that's a reference to coming to Christ in faith, that when the gospel goes out, it goes out with the call to believe, and we obey and we listen to that call through the power of the Spirit. So you came to Christ in faith, and then he gives us the result of that, so that you show sincerely, sincere, excuse me, brotherly love for each other. Since that is true, from a pure heart, from a heart that has been changed and transformed, love one another constantly. As we read the Bible, it's clear that one of the fruits of God's work of salvation in the life of His people is that we have genuine love for one another. And that fruit of genuine love starts with knowledge of and obedience to the truth particularly the truth of the gospel, that leads to this pure heart, this transformed heart that happens in regeneration, the new birth. Because the Christian has experienced new spiritual life, that life leads to a life of love. In verses 24 and 25, Peter quotes from Isaiah 40. And in Isaiah 40, the the thing that he mentions is interesting. Isaiah 46 through 8, there's a contrast being made between the imperishable nature of God's Word and the perishable nature of the world around it. I quote it often, the, the grass withers, but the flower fades, but this Word of God will abide forever. That's Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 through 8. God's Word is permanent and it's powerful. And Peter's readers knew that from their own experience. And so Peter basically says, remember what God did through His Word. But not only should we remember the power of the Word in our lives, finally, we should learn from and long for the truth of the Word. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. The final motivation for holiness comes to us from these opening chapters of, opening verses of chapter 2. If ever there was an argument for why chapter and verse numberings are not the most helpful, this one right here. Because chapter 2 is not continuing a new theme, at least not to begin with. The new theme doesn't start till verse 4. He's still talking about the pursuit of holiness. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. He says, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander." Listen, in light of this new birth that happened through the Word of God, in light of the power of the Word of God in our lives— We put off attitudes and actions in Christ's power that don't line up with the word. So we we, we put away. Uh, malice, the intentional dislike of others. We put away deceit, not dealing with people in truth. We put away hypocrisy, wearing the mask, as it were, pretending to be one thing when we're something else. We put away envy, desiring that which doesn't belong to us. And we put away all slander, speaking about one another in ways that don't build up. We put all of that away. And by the way, this actually isn't his imperative. (laughs) Because once again, he's explaining how you actually do the main action. So some of the translations will say, therefore, ridding yourselves. In process, as we rid ourselves of these things, here's what we're supposed to do. Verse 2, like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the Word, so that by it you may grow up into your salvation, if you have tasted that the Lord is good. Rather than having an appetite for evil, as it were, the believer is supposed to have one overarching appetite. Just like a baby doesn't want anything else except milk, so the believer wants nothing more than just the Word of God. Some of your translations will just say, look, since, like, desire the pure spiritual milk or something along those lines. I think that's missing the point of that word that's translated spiritual in some translations is actually of the Word. It's Literally from the word logos. Because Peter's making a connection here. That God's word is both a seed and it's both milk. You see, a seed bears all the properties necessary for the conception of spiritual life. That's why Paul can say in Romans chapter 10 faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. God's Word like a seed bears the properties for conception, but it's also like milk. Why? What does milk do? It sustains and strengthens life. And if that's the case, we are to desire the Word of God earnestly. This used to be fairly common knowledge among God's people so much of western christianity has missed the point so i'm just going to say it and i'll be honest i'm not going to apply any padding or cushion as i say it can i put it to you that oftentimes we think about how christians grow and we have completely wrong ideas of how christians grow christians don't grow because they hang out together Now, fellowship is important we by all means should pursue fellowship But let's be clear, the mere act of hanging out together doesn't cause spiritual growth. If that were the case, AA meetings and Rotary clubs would have tons of spiritual growth in them. Christians don't grow because they stop doing bad things. No, that's the fruit of growth, not the cause. Can I put it to you that this really should be simple. Christians grow because they're exposed to this book. If you've been at Redeemer for any length of time, you'll probably observe that we don't do much as a church. And what little we do is heavily weighted in the Bible department. That's on purpose. We're a young church. In fact, this week is three years since we got started. Two of those years, if we can be honest, I've been very vocal about what happened in the beginning of our church. Two of those years were wasted spending time on just about everything other than spiritual growth. And so when we finally were in a place where it was like, okay, finally, the bleeding has stopped. <laughs> we started thinking about growth first. Not because you want to create theological eggheads. Frankly, I am not that smart, and there are way better people who would be more better suited to creating really smart theological people. It's not about being better than some other church. Listen, we are not in the business of competing with other brothers and sisters. No, we do what we do as a body because we want to maximize every opportunity to grow. And when you read this book, it's very plain that growth happens one way. As God's people, whether it's through the Word that is preached, whether it's as we get together as groups to be around God's Word, whether it's in our own personal reading of God's word it's as we're exposed to this book that growth takes place. If you're not convinced of that, Psalm 19:7 through 9, as I close, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true, they are righteous altogether. Psalm 119, that great song of praise about the Word of God. Verse 9, how can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your Word. Psalm one hundred nineteen eleven: your Word I have treasured in my heart so that I may not sin against you. Psalm 109, 104, from your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. If none of that convinces you, maybe the words of Jesus will. John 17, 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Can I put it to you that no spiritual life happens when you close this book? The mere reading of the Bible might not just do everything you need. I'm not going to say that. But it kind of starts here. And Peter calls on us as his readers to long for, to literally crave the Word of God, to hear it, to read it, to study it, to memorize it, to meditate on it, to center our very lives around this Word of God. I'm done. I was writing my manuscript. I preached my full manuscript. I was writing out my manuscript, and I had an illustration I was going to use about mining for gold. And I threw it out. Because Peter actually can't be improved on. If nothing else matters to you, if everything else you've got an excuse for, Peter's got one final motivation. Why should you pursue holiness as God's people? Look at verse 3. He says, if you have tasted that the Lord is good. Quotation from the Psalms there. Psalm 34, 8 to be exact. If you need any motivation to do any of this, he kind of starts where he began, doesn't he? You've tasted that the Lord is good. If the Lord is good, why wouldn't you pursue this? Beloved, holiness is not about obeying a bunch of rules. Holiness is ultimately not about trying harder and doing better. Holiness is ultimately what takes place When weary sinners find rest in Christ, and then they keep looking to Jesus, and as they keep looking to Jesus, looking at what He has done and who He has made us, and we keep looking into His Word, and the more exposed to His Word, the more we see Him. It's as that takes place that like flowers, our hearts open up and we receive more and more of the grace of God that enables us to live as holy people. And that's why all the, if you notice, every time the New Testament tells you to do something, it starts off with a reminder of who you are and what God has done. Get the order wrong, and holiness won't follow. Get it right, and by the Spirit's help, you'll grow as God's people. And Father, we thank you so much that you give us your Word, which enables us to grow. We thank you that you give us all these great and precious motivations in your word because holiness matters to you. This is what your son died for, to purify for himself a people. Father, help us that we would pursue growth the right way. Help us that we would pursue growth the way that your word tells us to. By looking to Jesus by looking to what He has made us, and by looking to what He says to us in His Word. We ask all these things in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. Well, we come to the Lord's...